Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Keith Fenton Miller, author of the novel Fait Accompli, book one of the Water Nymph Gospels. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Sure. If someone hasn't heard about your novel Fate Accompli yet, how would you describe the novel? Yeah, so the book falls into the historical fantasy and humor genres. Hopefully it falls into the humor genres uh, genre. Uh, I'd say it's a, a mix of kind of Terry Pratchett and Madeline Miller, who wrote a fantastic book called Circe, among, among other books. Um, I can give you the the sort of the one sentence description and, and elaborate or just go right into the elaboration, you know, maybe take me a minute. But uh, so in, in one sentence, okay, in one sentence, uh, it's about a, a cursed Renaissance hat maker. So we're in the Inta- Italian Renaissance and he becomes embroiled in an Olympian clash when he uses a divine teleportation hat to rescue a woman who claims to be a water nymph who's being held captive by a a Medici prince who's possessed by the god Apollo. So there's kind of a lot to unpack there. Uh, The guts of the story really begins in 1603. Uh, We're in Tuscany, and we're introduced to Andalusia, who's a young hat maker, but he's got bigger dreams than making hats. He wants to be the next Galileo. The problem is his family has been cursed to make hats, ever since the 4th century when his Greek ancestor stole the god Hermes' teleportation hat. And the way the hat works, pretty much pretty simple. Uh, You think of a place, you ask the hat to take you there, and voila, there you go. And then there's Carlotta. Uh, She is a feisty Sicilian who dreams of building bridges and dams, just like her estranged father. But she's got two problems. First, she's a woman in the early 17th century. And second, like Andalosa, she's got a curse to deal with uh, because her ancestor was Daphne, the legendary water nymph from Greek mythology who turned into a laurel tree while uh, the god Apollo was uh, pursuing her, trying to have sex with her. And uh, what's not widely known among mythology experts, pretty much because I, I made this up, so it wouldn't be known at all, is that Apollo did not give up the chase after Olympus fell. So for centuries, he's been escaping oblivion, where the gods have been trapped since the 4th century, uh, possessing mortal men and going after the, the women in her family. And now, in this story, he's possessed uh, a very eccentric and powerful Medici. Uh, his name is Sansone de Medici. And he's taken Carlotta prisoner. And so Andalosa uh, encounters her at Sansone's Palazzo, and he has to s- decide whether to use the hat to rescue her and uh, face the ramifications, both, uh, both in terms of his uh, you know, personal safety and in terms of uh, you know, the threat because, he's, because Sansone is so powerful in terms of regulating uh, hats and everything else. Uh, and also in terms of uh, the divine uh, punishment that probably will come down on his head. So that's kind of where the story takes off. Sure. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Fate Accompli? You know, it's really a difficult uh, question to answer. I've given that a lot of thought, and I think I'd probably have to undergo years of uh, hypnotherapy and maybe three or four vision quests to kind of figure out the, the, uh, the germ of the idea. I guess I would say that I've always been fascinated 
by realistic stories with a touch of fantasy. Uh, probably goes back to um, my love of, of Mary Poppins and the Mary Poppins book, uh, which kind of was this merger of, of the everyday with with the dream world with, and with the kind of absurd element to it. So probably my fascination with magical realism. So, you know, the, 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 the particular myth, I don't know why I chose the, the Daphne myth. Um, again, I think that would require not only hypnotherapy, but perhaps psychotherapy as well. But I just like, um, I liked being able to weave the historical detail in with mythology to, to play with concepts that are interest that are interesting to me, like free will, father-son relationships, father-daughter relationships, religion versus science, um, and hypocrisy at all levels, large and small, you know, even amongst the gods. So, uh, and then hats in particular, when I was thinking about this, have, have fascinated me since childhood. And I think that's because of the book Old Hat, New Hat. Uh, it was just one of the, you know, the first books that I really loved. I loved the illustrations. I loved the the fussy customer who thought th- thought some hats were too twisty and others were too twirly, and I think that also uh, was sort of embedded in my subconscious, just as something that I was really fascinated with. So, uh, the subtitle of your book has book one. Are you writing more books in the series? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. In fact, I've uh, I've written uh, all the four other books in the series, uh, and they are in various stages of of revision right now uh they become progressively less polished as we get to the fifth book but uh yep they're all written great well what was your own writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published i've uh had a long standing interest in theater and and sketch comedy in in particular uh when i got to uh, college at University of Michigan. I joined a group called Comedy Company, and then later, after we uh, after I graduated, uh, sort of took this on the road, and uh, we were so we were writing sketches and performing them, and that really, uh, I think, planted the seed for uh, for the writing bug, for the creative writing bug. And I didn't, uh, and I, I had uh, I had written some short stories and things like that in college, but it, the novel writing bug didn't really hit until about. 2003 and uh, i just felt compelled to write something in a longer form and i tapped out 300 pages of something that started out promising and then quickly devolved into uh nonsense and i couldn't it, it just couldn't be saved and i think that's that's typical for most writers on their journey they'll they'll write a lot and then have to chuck it and then i uh, uh so i tried again i uh, i started taking uh, classes at uh, the Writer Center, uh, which is a, a great resource here in uh, the D.C. area, uh, just to bring a little bit more structure and discipline to my writing. And I actually did uh, complete a novel, uh, which I was very happy with. It didn't go anywhere in terms of you know publication or finding an agent, but it was very instructive. And then finally, the third time around in uh, 2011, I somehow settled on this this idea of weaving uh, Greek mythology into a, a, a story set in the modern day, and entered it in uh, the the Amazon. I think it was called the Breakthrough or Breakout Novel Competition. That right. was in tw- 2011, and 
uh, to my shock, it got to the semifinals. And so, oh, this is great. And when I sat back and kind of looked at what I had, I, I realized that there was a lot more than one story embedded in this particular novel. And I originally thought, okay, well, it's probably three. And then as the years went by, I realized it was probably five. And uh, so it was really uh, an evolutionary process. Well, when you sat down to write Fate Accompli, did you plot the novel extensively or do you work more organically and just kind of jump into the story? Well, I really wanted to be a plotter, uh, as, as they say, uh, you know, be organized. And, and when I wrote, when I started to write down what essentially would become this story, I'd written a very detailed, uh, you know, single space, 40 page outline. And when I was, as I got to writing it, I realized I was, I was deviating a lot from it, uh, from, from, from what I had outlined. And what I came to understand about myself is that my best writing occurs when I'm writing from, from my subconscious mind. Uh, and rather than trying to plan things out with uh, the analytical side of my brain, kind of just letting go and letting things flow, flow through the other side. And the, 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 the plotting was, was a very good starting point for sure. You need some idea of what the story is about and where it's going. But I found that pre-planning a lot of the, the key details kind of ruined the, 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 the fun part, or at least the funnest part for me, which is that discovery of, oh, this is what I'm really trying to say. Uh, you know, I may, I may think I'm trying to tell this story, but my subconscious mind knows better of what I'm really trying to say. And so when I sort of give into that and just, uh, you know, let, let that side of me flow through uh, my fingers into the keyboard, uh, the story takes on a, on a different form. Now, as a result, it's, it can be a when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com frustrating process and difficult to predict when something actually will be completed but that's what works for me it's uh it it i need some structure some sort of scaffold to start writing but you know the 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 flesh and the organs of the story kind of kind of grow <laughs> haphazardly and then i figure out what i have and you know try to shape it into uh, a frankenstein's monster of a story and hopefully it uh Hopefully it works for people. Sure. Well, given your writing and your publication today, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Um, well, certainly uh, there are uh, a list of resources that, uh, you know, I have, I have found very helpful. 
Uh, one thing is I think that uh, writers, well, everyone should at least go ha- experience a writer's workshop at least once. Um, you know, people have different opinions about it. And a, a lot of that experience, uh, the quality of that experience is really contingent on who's in your group and uh, how open they are to receiving feedback and how constructive the feedback is that they deliver to you. But that is really part of the process. It's Some might think it is, is, as a form of writerly hazing, but it is really necessary to uh, expose your work to people who you think will give you constructive uh, criticism. And then when you receive that criticism, you know, try to try to filter out what you think is the most constructive parts of it. And if you're hearing the same thing from, from multiple readers, chances are there's, there's something there that, that you need to deal with, you know, a plot hole or some weird thing about a character. And, you know, you just have to, it, it's tough because I tend to have a thin skin but you have to be you have to develop a thicker skin and realize that in the end that criticism is going to make the the end work product much much better and i've always found that every time you know i i uh i'm i'm anticipating the the feedback and oh it's going to be negative they're not going to like it and i i always have to remind myself that it's going to be so much better when you filter out the constructive aspects and incorporate and revise and it, it, it never fails me. That's always true. So I think that would be the kind of the one of the biggest uh, overarching pieces of advice I would give to a writer starting out. Well, you mentioned Terry Pratchett earlier. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed and that you would recommend? Yeah, that's uh, it, it, it's a it's a t- it's a big list. Uh, but I'd say the the ones that I've read recently that I really really liked, uh, nonfiction wise. Uh, cast by Isabella Wilkerson, uh, just an incredible uh, narrative. Uh, it, it's nonfiction. Uh, it deals with issues of of race and class, uh, but it's she she writes in a very uh, narrative style, so I find it very accessible. Uh, in terms of fiction books, uh, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, The Dutch House by Ann Patchett, uh, The Silent Patient by Alex uh, McKellides. So those are some really good ones that I would recommend. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to find out more about you and your books? So they could uh, start off at my website, which is just my name, keithfentonmiller.com. Uh, and uh, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, it's at kfentonmiller. So it shouldn't be, shouldn't be too hard to find. Have a footprint out there. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Keith Fenton Miller, author of the novel Fate Accompli, book one of the Water Nymph Gospels. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Keith, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Fate Accompli, the Water Nymph Gospels, book one, by Keith Fenton Miller. Chapter 6 Mount Othrys 1600 B.C.E. Moira modeled her new loom on her former one in Tartarus, substituting wood for iron. She was pleased the wood inversion didn't radiate cold or require nearly as much exertion to operate as its ferrous ancestor. Rather than clanging against the frame with a harsh metallic clink-clunk, the wooden batten knocked with a muted thub-dup. The crashing cymbal sound of her old loom had been superseded by a thumping bass drum, throw, thub-dub, 
thubda, throw, thubda, thubda. Her loom of destiny had a heartbeat. It was cumbersome to weave with destiny thread of varying thicknesses, so Moira segregated and spliced segments of the same thickness into three gauges, wound them onto separate six-foot-tall spools, and mounted the spools on dowel rods for ease of rotation. She then wove some experimental tapestries. She started with relatively minor, time-limited destinies, a slip-and-fall accident, a brief tryst, food poisoning from spoiled goat meat. After those proved successful, she graduated to marriages, children, occupations, and deaths. More success. The process was simple, really. She needed only keep the fate's particulars in the forefront of her mind and let her hands translate them into her unique textural language. Splendid! Cronus beamed after Moira informed him of her progress. Gaia is finishing her preparations with the oracles. We should be ready to launch in earnest quite soon. Cronus inspected the experimental tapestries hanging on a rack. As he ran his fingers over the fabric, he delighted in the tingling sensation and marveled at Moira's artistry. He turned to several tapestry woven from the thicker threads— their designs were similar to the others, replete with Moira's inscrutable logograms, but these tapestries were hotter and more magnetic. These are especially vibrant, he remarked, because they are for demigods and gods. I discovered their fates require the thickest gauge of thread. You wove a god's fate? Cronus asked in a mortified tone. Several, my lord. Cronus's left eye twitched. Which gods? Oh, minor obscure deities. Hehe. <laughs> Who exactly, Moira? He pressed, voice shaky. She gestured to the tapestry before him. That one there is for Prophasis, the spirit of excuses and pleas. She sounded so querulous, I think, because she lacked self-confidence. I arranged to have her fight and vanquish a giant. Since then, there's not a hint of whininess in her voice, and she speaks with gravitas. Same tired old excuses, but now they're actually persuasive. The next tapestry over is for Jelos, the spirit of laughter. I never found Jelos very funny. All puns and scatological humor about the public privy. I arranged it so he'd walk into a tavern with a gorgon, a harpy, and a man-eating giant. The peril dramatically improved Jealous's timing and inspired many new jokes. Good jokes. Everyone was too consumed with laughter to kill each other. At least they were when I left them. Cronus tugged nervously on his bottom lip. He glanced around the throne room, assessing whether anyone was in earshot. He took Moira by the elbow and escorted her behind the loom. Moira, he said urgently, this is a very grave development. It is? Yes, very grave. Your ability to determine the fates of gods, should it become widely known, could spell disaster. The selfish gods, and there are many, believe me, would pressure you to weave tapestries that further their interests at the expense of the others. <laughs> Why, a mere swatch from your loom could end my reign. Moira was affronted. I would never weave such a tapestry, my lord. 
I know you wouldn't, not willingly. But if you were under duress, you might have no choice but to weave me a fate like my father's. He unconsciously tented his fingers in front of his groin. Moira smacked her palm on her forehead. Forgive me, my lord. I had no idea. What should I do? Keep this discovery to yourself. And heavens forbid, if anyone asks you to make a god's fate tapestry demure, say only Gaia, only the mother goddess, can commission a god's destiny. No one would go up against mother. Is that clear? Yes, my lord. Good. Remove the spool of thickest thread from this room at once. And be discreet. Moira immediately relocated the spool of God-gauge thread to a utility closet and concealed it behind a curtain woven to resemble the room's marble walls. It would remain there until the gods were able to keep their selfish tendencies at bay. In other words, forever. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.